Okay, we are on letter number six out of seven in uh, the book of Revelation. So we're in chapter three. If you want to turn in your Bible there, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew or the beneath the chair in front of you or close by somewhere. Uh, so we're going to be looking at chapter three, verses seven through thirteen this morning. Uh, again, what you're going to find is the format of this letter. There are seven letters total, and the format to the letters is, follows basically the same kind of pattern where there's an introduction that Jesus gives of himself to begin with, which is, lines up with the first few verses or in, in the first chapter of the book of Revelation where Jesus is referred to in different kinds of ways, and he just falls back on that in the beginning of these letters. Uh, and then very often what you find is there's been a reproof. But one of the amazing things about this, there's only been other, one other letter, the one to Smyrna, where there was not a reproof or a rebuke by Jesus because of something that they were doing or they were not doing. And typically what you're, you, you find those reproofs have to do with is that they were allowing false teaching to go on within uh, the confines of their church. Uh, but this letter to Philadelphia we're about to read, notice here, there is no reproof, there is no rebuke. It's all words of encouragement from Jesus. Verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I will ask you this morning as we begin, because most of you have been here for the duration of this, are you hearing what the Spirit is saying to the churches? Probably most of us know what Philadelphia technically means. It's both the Greek word for brother and the Greek word for love. So it's loving brother. Uh, very often we think of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, and it's called the city of brotherly love, right? This is where it comes from. It's an ancient city. It was founded by uh, King Talus II of Pergamum, which is one of the other cities that we've studied already. Uh, 
It was often referred to in the early days as Little Athens because it was the aspiration of Attalus to make it, to be like Athens, to be very strongly guided by Greek culture in every facet of it. Conquered by the Romans at one point. After there was an, there actually was an earthquake in 17 AD that almost destroyed the city completely. And then the Romans rebuilt it. And Tiberius, the, uh, the Caesar at the time, he actually renamed it for a while as Neo Caesarea, which simply means New Caesar. So what are we going to glean from all that? One of the things we need to glean from it is this, is this, again, was a city, a culture that was very much steeped in Greek and Roman culture, especially when it came to their religion, that Caesar was worshipped, that the gods of Greece were worshipped, the gods of Rome were worshipped. There was idolatry on every corner temple here and temple there. And we know that in some of these other places that we've already studied that some of the people of the church were continuing to visit those pagan temples and worship centers. Having the idea that really is very common, you find it very prevalent in the Old Testament Israel, and that is, you know, we need to worship the Lord our God, but at the same time you need to worship all the other gods too. And just remember this, Israel, when they came out of Egypt, when they came, they brought the idols of Egypt right along with them. And you see that pattern over and over and over again in the Old Testament. So would it be somewhat naive for us to believe that something like that could not possibly exist within the boundaries of the church today? I'm talking about the church visible as the world sees the church, not necessarily, not as God sees the church, because God sees everyone's heart, and he knows exactly who really is his child and who is not. But you know people that have the idea that, yes, I'm, I'm a believer, but at the same time, I can live my life pretty much the same way that everybody else does in the world. That Jesus is my ticket to heaven, my way to heaven, but... It doesn't really matter what I do and what I don't do. And we know this. We know that whole concept is entirely alien from the scriptures. That when you are truly a child of God, that will be reflected in, your, in you and in what you do and what you don't do. He who is holy says of himself, and he is true. Well, we know that holiness, ultimately, what it is, the, the, the Hebrew word here actually means to cut or to separate. So one of the things, fundamental things we need to understand about holiness is probably the very best definition of holiness you can come up with is it's the otherness of God. It's everything about God that sets him apart from everything else. We do know that it's an attribute to some degree that he can actually convey to other people. That we indeed are set apart for holiness. Holiness of life. Holiness of living. And we know that ultimately in the end, when Jesus alludes here to his second coming at the end of this letter, we know that when he comes, that we will be made perfect in holiness. That sin will be gone from us forever.
But we know this. We know that holiness is an attribute of God. So one of the things we need to understand here is Jesus is, is, is ascribing deity to himself. He talks about holiness. He also talks about truth. God is ultimately truth. Everything that's true comes from God. The one who has the key to David. Now that comes from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. Convenient. So one of the questions we need to ask this morning is, what is the key to David? What is this key to David? Well, if you think about keys, I've got a bunch of keys in my pocket. You should see Lori's keys. Looks like, like some kind of oriental weapon or whatever. I mean, I don't have to worry about her being mugged or anything like that because she certainly has an uh, adequate weapon to protect herself. But, you know, this is the key to my truck, and you know this. You know that this will turn on, it'll open, unlock the door to my truck, and it'll start my truck. But it won't unlock the key to the, the door to the church, or it won't unlock the lock that's on the front door of my house. I have other keys for those things. So we know that what keys are for, they're to open things, and not just everything, but they're to open particular things. And what I would say to you is this, is ultimately I think that what is being pointed to here is the key that opens up the door that leads into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. And if you have someone to ask you, what do you think the key is? What is the key that opens that door? I hope that a lot of you would say this. That it's righteousness. That it's not just righteousness. It's perfect righteousness. And it's by perfect righteousness. It's, it's the only means by which anyone will ever be able to enter into God's, Jesus, God's eternal kingdom. People very often see a lot of goodness in themselves, and there are a lot of people that have a lot of goodness in them. Don't get me wrong. But there is no one that is perfectly good. There is no one that's perfectly righteous except for one. That means if you and I are ever going to acquire the key of righteousness to the kingdom of God, it has to be given to us. We can't... fabricated ourselves. And we know that this is one of the key reasons Jesus came into the world to live that life of perfect righteousness. Not for himself, not because he needed the key, but because you and I need the key. And we can't do it on our own. So he has come and he's lived that life of perfect righteousness that you and I would have the key that unlocks that door. Who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. That's, that's kind of confusing there. Talking about how it's shut, no one can open it, or how it's open and no one can shut it. It's an indication that God controls all of this. It's not me, it's not you. It's God. Emily, 
our little granddaughter's with us right now, and she's she'll be two in November. So she's in you know the toddler stage, and she's I mean she's running all over the place now, and took her a little while to get her bearings and all that. But she's all over the house, and she loves to go around the house and close doors. And the thing about it is, is she's not quite to the point she can, she, can, she can barely reach the doorknob with the tips of her fingers. And so what she does a lot of times is she'll go in one of the rooms and she closes the door behind her, but then she's shut in and she can't get out. So someone has to go and let her out. If you think of, in a general sense of the gospel and what Jesus accomplished when he came into this world, is this, is he opened up the door. And we know that we live in that time when the call is going out to everyone. The gospel goes forth to everyone. Everyone is beckoned to come and to enter in through that door. And we know that some people do, but sadly some people don't. We also know this, that that door, I call it the door of salvation, is only going to be open for a time. As long as it's open, it's open. Jesus holds it open. He's the only one that can open it. He's the only one that can close it. But it's open right now. But it will not be open forever. That one of these days Jesus will shut the door. You think about the parable of the ten virgins that Jesus conveys. And it has to do with these ten virgins, five of whom come prepared for the bridegroom to come. Five who don't. And they get in a bind, and those five who didn't come prepared, they have to go and try to work things out at the last minute. But during the time they're gone, the bridegroom comes and goes in to the wedding feast, and those other five virgins go in with him, and the door is closed. It's open for a time. And it's going to stay open as long as Jesus wants it open. But one of these days, we will eventually get to that point in history when Jesus closes the door and it will not open after that. It will be closed. So salvation is offered for a time, but eventually we will get to the point where there will be no more offer of salvation because people have refused it time and time and time again. As we said before, you see it over and over again in these letters that people, even when confronted with Christ, even when confronted with God, that they don't repent of their sins. Verse 8, he talks, he says, I... I Uh, I know your deeds. He said that about a number of these churches, that he sees everything that's going on. He knows what everyone's thinking. He knows what everyone's doing. And there's reasons for encouragement. Because he sees their good works that they are doing on 
his behalf. He mentions in verse 8 that they have a little power. In other words, you could almost say that there's a real weakness. That is, they, have a, they have a little power. They have a little power. That means they also have weakness. They don't have perfect faith. That even though they're doing the works of Christ, they're not doing all the works that Christ would have them doing. They're not doing the works that they do perfectly. Because there's still that sin within them that they're all struggling with. But they are moving ahead. They're not stagnant. Their faith is making a difference in their life. And it's making a difference in the lives of other people. There's a sense in which Jesus expects a whole lot. There's another sense in which a little for Jesus goes a long way. Because it's an indication of where your heart really is. Is it for you or is it for him? Do you have desire to be obedient to your master? To serve him in whatever capacity he calls you to. And it may, not, it may be an area where you're entirely uncomfortable in. Let me tell you something. It should surprise us that Jesus, if, if Jesus didn't call us to do things that don't come very easy for us to do sometimes. He wants to stretch us. And if he always calls us to do the things that we do very easily and, and maybe we're particularly gifted in and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, just come kind of natural to us, we're not going to grow a whole lot. He calls us to do hard things, to do difficult things for a lot of reasons. Is One of those is it's the only way your faith is going to grow. To increase. That you're not stagnant or even going backwards. If you have a little power today, you need to thank God for it. Because he's the source of that power. They've kept his words. They haven't denied his name. And you need to understand that they, they were immersed in a culture where they were encouraged daily, constantly, to deny the name of Jesus. This church was persecuted not only by the Romans, but evidently there was a significant Jewish community that was in Philadelphia. And they encouraged them constantly to deny the name of Jesus. Verse 9, he says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and they are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet to know that I have loved you. If you read the Bible, you can't conclude anything but this. The early persecutions that fell upon the church, most of the early converts were Jewish people. You need to understand that. But the most intense persecution that fell upon them came from the Jewish community, not from the Romans. From the Jewish community. 
In AD 90, leadership in the Jewish community gathered in a place called Janina, which I'm not even sure where it is. One of the things that they did was they verified the Old Testament. In other words, it's a place that we have first written, you know, the books that were acknowledged as being the word of God that we, consider, that we call the Old Testament. But at the same time, they authored what were called the, the 18 benedictions. And this was something that the average Jewish person in the synagogue would have, would have recited probably on a weekly basis as they're worshiping. That's what's the purpose of these benedictions. One of those big benedictions was this. For apostates, there is no hope. Christians and heretics perish. There's a very good chance that many of these people in this young fledgling church were Jews themselves. And they were being intensely persecuted by friends and neighbors and family members constantly with things like, ah, just give up on this Jesus stuff. Come back to the synagogue. It's where you belong, etc., etc., etc. One of the things that I struggle with is this, is, is I hate to say anything about Jews in general because if you say anything that's negative at all, people assume that you're anti-Semitic. But you need to understand something. The Bible speaks to some things like this. Uh, and one of the things that you need to get to understand is this is that in a sense, the New Testament redefines what being a Jewish person is. Because the thing that is emphasized over and over again in the New Testament is, is, is not that you are in the bloodline of Abraham, but that you have the faith of Abraham. That it's all about having Abraham's faith, not about having the blood of Abraham flowing through your veins. When it talks here about the synagogue of Satan, it is probably talking about the local Jewish synagogue. Because we know this. We know synagogues were the gathering religious places of Jewish people. Now again, don't take this at all as being anti-Semitic at all. It's not. It all has to do with is your faith in God or do you believe that you're a child of God just simply because you are a distant relative of Abraham? He says here, he says, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet. In other words, there's going to come a time. Jesus is promising there's going to come a time when I'm going to turn all of this back on those people who are persecuting my people. Who are claiming to be my people, but they don't know me. 
They're not of me. Have you ever been persecuted for the name of Jesus? I know that some of you have lost family members. Some of you have lost friends. Some of you suffered in other ways. Maybe you suffer financially. Because maybe you were working for someone at some time and then you came to faith in Jesus Christ and the next thing you know, you're not really looked upon very well and I don't know, someone here may possibly even lost their job because of something like this. Persecution is part of the Christian life. It really is. And, and we understand this. There are places in this world today, right now as we're speaking, where people, Christians, our brothers and sisters, are being intensely persecuted to the point of imprisonment and torture and death. Right now as we're speaking, we have brothers and sisters that are giving their life for Jesus. Because they refuse to give up his name. You ever wonder what you would do if you were ever in that position? Because there have been a lot of people through the ages when, when the persecution comes, they fall away. Jesus describes it in the parable of the sower. He says that there are believers that, that I mean, there are people that the, the seed of the gospel falls upon the rocky soil. And initially it seems to take root and, and, and they seem to have faith and all of that. But when what comes, when persecution comes, they wither away. Do you ever wonder what you would do? If you really had a choice today to profess the name of Jesus or deny the name of Jesus to save your life or to prevent being thrown in prison or something. It's very conceivable as we are speaking right now, we have a brother or sister that is enduring that very ordeal. Probably many of them. We live in a land that God has blessed in unbelievable ways, and we understand that things are changing in our land, and we understand why. Things are changing, not for the better. Maybe in some sense they are changing for the better. In a big sense, they're changing for the worse. And we know it's what happens when people turn away from God. We're seeing the fruit of it. We're seeing the result of it in our culture around us. And we understand this, is that if time, if it continues on the path, it's on, even though you and I probably have never really suffered much intense persecution in our lifetime, it could become a reality for us. We could be as a lot of the people, rest of our brothers and sisters are in the world, where we're suffering persecution intensely. And let me just say this, if we continue on the path that we're on, that time will come. We're just seeing the beginnings of it now, the rumblings of it now. But if it continues, that day will come in this land where we have had religious freedom like no one else in the whole world has ever had. There are people today that are doing everything they can do to take it away from you.
And sometimes it seems as though they're beginning to win. So we may endure persecution. But the thing about it is, is this, is, in the end, Jesus will humble all of those who have persecuted his children. He will cause them to bow the knee before those very people that they have persecuted. What we should be hoping and praying is this, is that everyone comes to faith in Jesus. Sometimes we pick and choose. We say, gosh, you know, so-and-so is such a great person. They would make a great Christian. But not that fellow over there. He's really pretty nasty and, you know, he's not the kind of sort of person we want to come into the church. The crazy thing is this is very often the people that we least expect are the people that Jesus calls. And Jesus brings. Paul describes the church as basically the foolish of the world. Those who were foolish in the world. Not the strong. Not the wise. But the weak and abased things of the world. These are the ones that Jesus calls and brings into his kingdom. Very often for what reason? To show the folly of worldly wisdom. There will come a time when everyone that's ever persecuted you will be forced to acknowledge that they were wrong. Dead wrong. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance. And if if there's a word here that I want us to get from this this morning, and that is perseverance, that you and I must persevere. That the Christian walk is very often in Bible described as a race. We were talking about encouragement in Sunday school this morning. Something that we all need to be about doing. We need to be encouragers. We all need encouragement. And the only way we're going to get encouragement is if the people around us are also encouragers. And we are encouragers. Watching TV years ago, one of these Ironman competitions, they've always amazed me that the human body is able to endure the kind of torture they put their body through because they swim for like two miles and they ride a bicycle for a hundred and something miles and then they run a marathon after that and it takes like nine or ten or twelve hours to do it of constant, strenuous exercise. And you just wonder how anybody's even capable of doing something like that. But I was watching one of these Ironman races on TV. And they had, they had done the swim and they had done the bicycle and they were doing their marathon. And the way the marathon ended was on a beach. And the finish line was up over the dunes. And they had to run up this set of stairs to get there. 
And it wasn't just one or two stairs. It might have been 100 or 150 stairs to get from beach level all the way back up to where the finish line was up top. And, 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 and it was heartbreaking to see how people would get to those stairs and they were so worn at that point, they just could not lift one foot to get it on the step to get up. And people were falling, and, and, and they couldn't get up on the stairs. And, and, and then people were coming behind them, and what were they doing? They were stepping over them and stepping around them so they could run the race. That is not our race. Because what we do is we stop and we pick our brother and sister up. Or they stop and they pick us up and they help us get to the finish line. Or we help them get to the finish line. We need Jesus, guys and gals, but we also need each other. Because we're running this race together. And none of us is strong enough to make it without the rest of us. We have churches for a reason. That's because God is very wise and he knows that we need each other. Not just a little bit. We desperately need one another to be there for us and at the same time for us to be there for them. To persevere together because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. Again, you see this over and over again pointed to in, 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 in these letters, and that is there's coming a time of judgment. As we've alluded to already, that is the time when the door of salvation is going to be closed permanently, securely, not to be opened again. Matthew 25 talks about Jesus, how he will come and his throne will be set up. His judgment seat will be set up and every person of every nation will come before him. For him to test those who dwell upon the earth. I'm coming quickly. We've seen that a number of times. And, uh, you know, you, you, you and I, we, we think quickly means that sometimes in the, maybe the next minute or two or maybe an hour or something like that, but certainly not 2,000 plus years. Just remember, Peter helps us to understand this, that God's timetable is not the same timetable that you and I use. What's quickly for us is not quickly for God. And we know this. We know that that door of salvation is open until all, as the Bible describes, of the elect will come in. You wonder what Jesus is waiting for. And I've said this before. He's waiting for a number of things, but one of those is this. is for all of the elect. And he will not come until they've come. Until they've been born. Until they've come to know him. It will not happen. And we shouldn't want it to happen. (laughs) 
I mean, what would happen if Jesus had come back in 1950? Where would we be? We want that door to stay open as long as God's determined it'll be open. And we don't want it to close a minute quicker. And if we do, there's a sense in which we are willing to leave our brothers and sisters laying there on the stairs just as long as we get in. Now, we don't want to do that, do we? You know, hallelujah, people are always talking about Jesus is coming back. You know, I hear it all the time. And one of these days, somebody's going to be right. But they have nobody's been right for 2,000 years. But he is coming. And he's coming quickly according to his own timetable. Hold fast to what you have in order that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar of the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Hold fast to what you have. You may be sitting here this morning and thinking, you know what, my faith is weak. I don't have much power. But the thing you need to be rejoicing is that you have any at all. Because if you do, that's because God has given it to you. Faith is not something we can just muster up within ourselves. We don't have what it takes to do that. It is the free gift of God given to us. That's what grace is all about. That we're saved by grace, by God's doing, by God's giving, by God's enabling. Not because we deserve it or earn it in any way, shape, or form ourselves. We don't add one whit to what Christ has done for us. Good works are simply the evidence, the fruit of saving faith. So if we have saving faith, there will be good works in our life. Perseverance, he who overcomes. He's encouraging them to stay in the race, to continue in the fight. Don't give up. Don't give in. He's saying the same thing to us this morning. And he makes these promises that that, that he who overcomes, he who perseveres basically, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, we understand this, that, uh, you know, pillars or columns or architectural things that, you know, they use for doing buildings. And the interesting thing is this not really used much by by Israel, you know, the temple built in, in Jerusalem was not built with columns like you find with the Greeks and the Romans. Columns and pillars were really common to Greek and Roman architecture, in particular, especially when it applied to their pagan temples. But what Jesus is saying here is this, is those who truly believe, I will make them part of my temple, the temple of God. 
Just remember this, that in the New Testament, you are described as being a temple of God because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. The blessings, as a believer, you will experience blessings in this life. You really will. Keep your eye out for them. It's very easy to receive them and just let them go by without even thinking about it. Watch for the blessings of God. But I want to remind us this morning that this world is no longer our home. That we are aliens, really aliens in a foreign land. That our home is with Jesus. And one of these days, he will absolutely perfect that. And we will understand why. We'll have answers to all kinds of questions. For now, we have the word of God. We have to trust it. Rely upon it. Depend upon it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.